G'day and welcome back to uh, the much-anticipated and long-awaited next episode of the Run In Your Mouth podcast. Uh, I'm Ben Darcy and I'm here with my co-host Jimmy Morrison, who is down in Sydney. How's things, Jim? Well, thanks, Darcy. It's uh, great to be back with you, mate. Uh, I was uh, eagerly watching your tour around Australia, which looked unbelievable, mate. I was so envious being stuck in Sydney during uh, during COVID, watching you out exploring this beautiful country. Um, so it's great to see you again as face-to-face as we can manage these days and get to have a yarn with our uh, amazing guest. Yeah, mate. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a good trip. We might even uh, have to get a little podcast down talking about I want to share some of the places that we ran and some of the places I want to go back to. And yeah, I think, I think you could probably pass on a little bit of uh, knowledge around some good places to go and run. If people are trying to go on a bit of a trip or have a running holiday yeah. for training purposes, there's a couple of real yeah, yeah. out there, but um, we'll talk about yeah, I that. Think I, I think I was okay until I seen you on the Larapinta trail. And I think that's when uh, I started to be quite uh, as a, Yes, I was just like, oh God, I'd love to be there if that bloke right about now running some of that uh, Larapinta trail. Yeah, mate, and I only did the um, I only did the first little bit, which is apparently the boring part. And yeah, like I think I'll be <laughs> off there, mate. We'll um, we're gonna have to get a crew together and take a van out there and you know run the whole thing as a group over a couple of days. It'd be unreal. But yeah. we won't um, won't harp too much on that because I don't want to keep our guests waiting. Um, Today we're joined by a fine gentleman uh, who has done quite a bit of running and more recently done something pretty bloody extraordinary, which hopefully is the uh, nuts and bolts of today's chat. And it's Mr. Simon Byrne. How are you, Simon? Very good, Ben. How are you doing? I'm well. Nice very good. Hello, Jim, as well. <laughs> Welcome, mate. It's great to have you here. I'm over the moon. It's been nice to be here. Mate, thanks for coming on. I... Uh, We've, we've obviously met before, and um, when I saw your little jaunt around the uh, caldera down in northern far north New South Wales, I thought, oh, geez, this would be a good thing to talk about, and I've read your little recaps and stuff since, and uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing it straight from the horse's mouth as we get into it today. But for our listeners, uh, I'll just, just by way of introduction, so Simon it has been running for quite some time and I'll let him tell you a bit more about that, but just some, some brief history on him. Simon's currently a coach with the quite, uh, quite well-known mile 27 uh, run coaching team. Um, he is also, which I think he should be pretty bloody proud of. He's the founder of the Byron Bay runners, which I'm also keen to pick your brain on. Um, and, done plenty of races around the world Simon and I'm probably going to forget a few but the ones the ones that I've jotted down here you've done Ultra Trail Mont Blanc you've done the Bob Graham round the McWilliams round over in the in the UK um, you've also locally here you've done Great North Walk Great Southern Endurance Run you've done the Kokoda Challenge here on the Gold Coast UTA Buffalo Stampede Grand Slam six foot track uh and they're just the racing ones that I've jotted down. So I'm sure there's plenty more. So you like the long stuff is what stands out to me. I think that's the, yeah, that's definitely, definitely what I'm towards for sure. Yeah. I think uh, I just love that. Once it gets past uh, nighttime and uh, you go past hundred K, things start to get interesting then. And I think it's, uh, 
it's all that kind of mindset stuff and as well as being fit and wanting to you know challenge yourself I do love that going through the night when things get a bit mad and uh, it makes people makes people uh, react and do things differently so yeah yeah I think 100 miles gets things uh, gets the juices going when I get that sort of distance and uh, that sort of terrain and stuff yeah definitely. Yeah, it seems to be uh, what you described there seems to be a bit of a common theme amongst people that like doing the bigger ultras, particularly the bigger trail ultras where they're, they're getting into that, you know, everything under the headlamp, the mind starts go a bit silly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's your, that's your happy place. It, it most definitely is. Yeah. It's, I think, I don't know. I, I, th- I think it's, it goes back to, you know, when you were younger and stuff and having gone out and having all nighters and stuff like that and going out, you know, partying and stuff. There's still something quite cool about doing it as an adult now. And it's doing something as ridiculously silly as just putting a pair of running shoes on and running all day and then all night and putting a head torch on and just being like a kid running through the woods and stuff. It's it's still got that kind of silly appeal to me as well, where I still think this feels a bit daft. This this is quite good fun. <laughs> you might have just solved the, the whole puzzle there, Simon. As you were saying that about it's a bit like when you're younger and you go out and you tie one on and you do stupid stuff. And I often think, why do we like, particularly you and I, Jim, like, why do we like running so far? Um, why, why are these the events that appeal to us? But that, that might be the answer. <laughs> uh, it's what I enjoy, but I, I do think it gets all a bit, it gets a bit interesting. You, you know, you've, you start to throw other elements into the puzzle rather than just running. You know, it's, um, that's when it becomes an adventure then. I think, you know, you're starting to chuck in food and nutrition and sleep and, just that kind of tenacity to want to keep going and that bloody mindedness sometimes. So um, I just sometimes like that element to it. And the further I've gone, the more I enjoy it. And I think it's just that love of moving across a landscape, whatever the landscape is, as efficiently as you can. And as we all know, it's not all running all the time. You know, you're walking quickly, you're power hiking and stuff. So it's just, uh, I love the idea of, yeah, moving across a landscape, I think, and, and having and having yourself just just to depend on nobody else, just you <laughs> and the crew and all of the other people that help you as well. <laughs> yeah, all those bits that we don't tell everyone about all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So where did it all start for you, mate? Was running, were you a little athletics kid? Were you, uh, you know, were your parents runners? How did, how did running come to you as a, essentially a, a hobby or a sport or a passion? Yeah, running family, my dad. Um, had been a runner um, as a kid and all that side of the family my aunties and stuff were all runners um, and then as we grew up sort of early 80s started running so and I think I did my first so me and my brothers and sisters were running but I think I first did a half marathon it's in 1984 and I was 12 and um it was a charity thing. It was the Great North Run, which is one of the biggest half marathons in the UK. It's absolutely massive. And uh, so I did that. And at the time, you were probably, I think a couple of years later, they said kids shouldn't run that fast. So you weren't allowed to. You had to be 16 after that. But I kind of sneaked in under them. And then once we started doing that, my dad just started coaching us, me and my brother, um, David, and sister Louise. And so we ended up going through school to do, doing track and cross country. The, the track and cross country, the Harrier League system in, in the UK is um, is huge. And when I popped back to the UK to visit family in 2018, it's just as big. And you've got, you know, every age group for a cross country at the weekend. And the men will have three different packs, a slow pack, medium pack, and a fast pack. And the slow pack gets a five-minute head start in the medium pack. 
and the medium pack gets a five minute head start on the fast pack. And some of the guys in the fast pack are elite runners, but there could be between five and 700 people just in the men's weekly or monthly race. It's hugely oversubscribed. And that's just the men's and the women's is the same. And people are just racing every weekend, every other weekend. And the 10Ks, they're not massive, but it was there's just a vibrant kind of running scene. And there was when we were kids the same and the track was the same there. You know, we, we used to just represent and get involved in every event we possibly could, 400 to 3,000. And if you got more points for being in the pole vault, you'd get a pole and you'd jump over something which you could literally hurdle over just because you were given points to do it. So we all we give everything a bash, even though it was, you know, we, we were never pole vaulters. But as long as you carried the pole and jumped over something, you got points for your team. So, yeah, we were always into, into running. And as we went through school and stuff, um, up to probably about 17, 18, and then, yeah, and then I kind of went to university um, to do teaching. And I was sort of, it was a biology and a sports science degree. So kind of sport was always there as part of, um, even as my sort of later education and, and becoming then a teacher, PE teacher, science teacher and stuff like that. Although I tended to find that the more I taught PE, the less sport I did. <laughs> and, as, and, and I actually became primarily a, a science teacher. Um, and special needs teacher and um but most of the time I was into other stuff at the time then so then music and I got distracted with with things from sport and just kind of was working but I was mostly into music and bands for for most of my 20s and then came back to it in my 30s um, and just got fully back into running and just enjoying that half marathon and then cross countries and then building it up and then by the time we moved to Australia 2007 I was then doing longer and longer distances and started doing road running marathons and I think one of my younger brothers said well have you ever tried going under three hours and I was like just completing a marathon would be good but then when you realize that you could go under three hours it actually those 20 years in the wilderness sorry those years in my 20s in the wilderness of maybe not doing much exercise everything hasn't gone to pot so I was uh, <laughs> I was quite pleased with myself that uh, I was able to still pick up some level of fitness and and be a little bit proud of being able to sort of reach those little targets and get under certain times and stuff and thought huh, maybe I can save myself from a life of debauchery so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and kids yeah for sure I don't yeah. think that's a uh, I don't think you're Robinson Crusoe there I think that's a not an unfamiliar story for quite a few yeah, it's finding that replacement thing, isn't it? Something just to do. And I think music and and, and, and going out and, and stuff, that was a huge part of my, mine and my wife's sort of 20s and the early 30s. And then we got completely into fitness and health and stuff. And we have just really, really put most of our efforts into, into being like that for the kids, you know, and, and, and for ourselves. And then realizing that you can still keep keep doing something a little bit more adventurous and holding on to that, I think. Can you remember the moment where you switched from Oh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna exercise or do too much today because I want to go out and have a big night too. I'm not gonna have a drink tonight, and I'm gonna have an early, early one so I can get up early and, and go for a run. I, th I think having kids. I think I think that was be just before having kids. We started to think about like getting fit and healthy, and wondering if we were too unhealthy to have kids, probably. And um, and and just switching there and going right. We do need to move out of London and. Uh, move to somewhere quiet and actually yeah sort of make make an actual sort of firm decision to um to be healthier and that, that and that's kind of where it all started i guess it was uh and re and recapturing recapturing that idea that oh i could still run and i could still hit certain times and with just a little bit of work i started to see those things come back and i was like oh actually 
still not. I'm not. I'm not too old. <laughs> no. So, oh, we're never too old. Hopefully. So, <laughs> the once you you got into the the I guess the road stuff like the halves and the marathons and those sort of things. Yeah. You sell some some goals and just I, I'm, I don't know. I think from what I read somewhere roughly your marathon PB was about two forty something like that. Is that am I Yeah, it's just around about two fifty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was that kind of yeah. Um. So yeah, so obviously pretty handy there, mate. The when did you swap? When did you go? Hey, this road running stuff's all right, but I'm going to go and start running further in the bush. Like, when did that appeal start to you? I, th- I think that that idea, like of cross country and stuff, from a kid, it's it's always appealed. And I think that I had a, a friend here, um, Kelly Keonan, who's the one of the local PE teachers here, and she does a huge amount of running. And she kept mentioning things like six foot track and um, Lamington Classic um and and things like that out here and we started just doing more trails and realized that for the amount of hard work I put in to get into road running and to get to a certain level I thought I could probably go quicker and then I thought but I'm not sure if I want that as my main motivation just constantly focusing on the metric of it being just about pace all of the time I really enjoyed for a while but after a bit I, I realized that it's a hell of a lot of pounding muscles and um, in, in road and, and hard surfaces. And what I was starting to get out of going across trails and in hills and mountains and, and things like that was just much more of an appeal to me. And I think I started to really get something different out of it then. And it wasn't just about, can I get fit again? Can I get back into running? It was like, I'm already back into running now. It's like, how can I transfer this into something a little bit more adventurous and a bit more fun um, than just going out and only hitting times, which is kind of the main motivation for doing something like a half marathon or a marathon. It, it's, you're not entering it to look at the scenery. I mean, the Brisbane Marathon's got a nice, you know, it's, it's, it's nice and stuff, and, but it's, uh, it's, it's different. And, uh, and I think that going down and then doing things like Six Foot and Lamington and um, stuff around here made me think, you know, there's more to this and it's so then it became 40s and 50s and then and then a friend of mine he'd done north face 100 which was before it was the eight um, whatever uta and he'd done it one year and he said oh next year let's do a miler so i haven't done 100k yet so he bet me that we should both do it together and that's when i did my first sort of gnw and that was with Jules and uh, it was more of a bet just to see if we could go and do it. We're more like tourists going to have a little bit of a, a nose of what all of these crazy people were doing. And um, I think after <laughs> I got lost massively on that run for a couple of hours, but we still finished it. And uh, I think then I realized that I just didn't know if I was the sort of person who could do that sort of thing. You see all these crazies. And I think halfway through, I actually thought I wasn't and I was going to quit. And I had an amazing crew who got me through and pushed me through it. And at the end, I, I, I couldn't believe that it was me who, and I sound like, because now a lot of people know you as somebody who does this sort of thing. But when you first do it, I think you definitely look at yourself and think, am, am I the sort of person who goes mad after I've ran this long? Or what if it's just something crazy to my head? Like, because I've, you, you've got no idea what it's going to do to your body until you've done it for the first time. And then I suddenly realized that actually, it's thing. It's something that people can do, and it's 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 not that you're extra special for being able to do it. You just got to want to do it. And I think I think that totally changed who I thought I what what I thought my body was capable of doing just by doing the one of the hundred mile, and it probably took me thirty six hours or something like that. But um, then after that, it became an obsession of just modifying that particular race. I did GNW four day, four years in a row, 
because I wanted to, it was like a puzzle that I just had to sort out. I couldn't enter another race. It was just that race for four years. It's the only one I did. I was obsessed. So what what years, so just backtrack a bit. So the, the trail running, the ultra trail sort of stuff didn't really come until you moved out to Australia. Is that? Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. It was Australia that's done that to me for sure. Um, I, I'd started to do, you know, half marathon sort of distance um, cross countries, I guess, or trail runs just before we came to Australia. So we came here in this time. And we were over in 2000 for work and stuff, but about 2007 is when we moved out here properly to make, to have, you know, to have a family. So, um, and that was when I started to pick up the ultra stuff for definite. It's definitely Australia that's uh, been the, the catalyst for that for sure. What, um, what years did you do Great North Walk? Was it 13, 14, 15, 16? What years? When did you? What years did you? Were you there, Jim? I uh, think Liz did it in eighteen. Right, so you wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Missed, missed. Yeah, I, I think the first. I think it was thirteen. It must have been two thousand. I think that was the last year that they did it officially in a November, because then after that it shifted to the September because it was too hot. And sometimes you're going down in one of the valleys and it was like crazy hot. And at the time it was like Australia's toughest hundred miler. But it was mostly because the heat was insane. So then they shifted it to the September. But just so they didn't make it too easy, they removed one of the water stations <laughs> just, to, just to balance <laughs> up. <laughs> I remember it being quite a funny. But, well, yeah, it's a, a great course. It's, um, it's got a little bit of a, a connection for us, Jim, as well, because I, I, I don't think I ever had any intention of running ultra marathons. And, Jim, I think at one point you were training for that, and you said, oh, I've got to have a pacer after a certain point. And he's like, do you want to pace me? And at this point in time, I think I was training for like a half Ironman or something like that. And I'm like, how far do you need me to run? He goes, oh, you have a pacer from 100K on. I'm like, I can't run 60 kilometres. That's good like, to see. It's come back to me the other day and I was running. I'm thinking, why did I start doing this? And I'm like, I'm winding it all back. And it's because Jim asked me to pace him. And I thought there is no fucking way I'm going to be able to run 60Ks like keep up with him. <laughs> And so, and it was all to do with Great North Walk. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's changed over the years now. I think because the course has changed. Um, I think hmm. they had some problems with permits and stuff like that. So I think it ended up becoming not the A to B kind of thing. I think now it's just an out and back, and they've got some loops and stuff. But but certainly hmm. it was a. I, I did. I became quite obsessed with mastering just things like navigation, things like nutrition. It was my early days of just putting jigsaw pieces together and training was one element but actually just mastering how to get that far and not get lost and, <laughs> and not puke up every single you know hour and stuff so yeah it was, it was I, I liked it for that before I kind of branched out to try other things looks like you solved the uh you worked it out though mate because you've excuse me you've gone on to pretty much do all of the well, a lot of the uh a lot of the big ultras around Australia um, and then I think when we first crossed paths would have been when you were training with Hunter and did a bit with Hunter and Delina maybe with regards to um, uh, GSER, isn't it? Is it? You guys went down there? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was the first time I'd sort of met um, Hunter at least anyhow. Yeah, I'd known Delina for, for years. Um, her kids actually went to the school I taught at, so I know her from her. But, uh, but Hunter I met there and, yeah, and that was – I think GSER was uh, certainly in 2017 when it was the bullet to bright version. And it was like 100 and 
80 k's. It was about 11,000 meters of elevation. And the intention, I think, by Sean, the director, had been that it was going to be a biannual thing that each yeah. year, second year, it would run the opposite direction, which I think made it 12,000 to go the other way. But I think yeah, weather has kind of ruined it, I think, a little bit for them. Because every I think in the 2019 version, I think the, the weather was so bad they couldn't get the course markers out, so then it ended up being an out and back. And then in subsequent years, I think because it's been more convenient to organize it like that, I think it stayed as an out and back. And it was possibly loops last year. But that first, the first year, its first incarnation from Buller to Bright, I remember finishing that race and like getting across the line and Sean coming over and I just said, man, that's absolutely fucked. It was like completely, it was, it was the maddest race I'd done in Australia. Um, because when, just when you think you've done something hard and something hard, and I think at I, GMWs and, and Northburn, and it was just a different level of kind of gnarliness. And it was that it was it was the first feeling I think I got in Australia, where you've got because certainly up here we run inside the forests and it's trees and stuff, and it was a much more above the tree line alpine European feel to running. And some of the sections that had us running through, you're climbing up sort of rock bits and they had these really rubbish unstable kind of metal ladders that were supposed to help you climb up these things and I just remember it being brutal and there was a, a lightning storm I think early on and we've been told that if there's any thunder or lightning if you're carrying carbon poles whatever throw them and I remember going it was an Andrew McDowell a guy from New Zealand and we got it was only in, it was in the first sort of five six hours I think and we were doing quite well, so there's no way you were going to stop and the thunders roll in. And you were supposed to count the difference between the times of like, you know, how long, when the thunder and then the lightning and how close it was. And you could actually feel the air crackling around you. And me and this lad threw our poles to the ground and lay on the floor and we would get pounded by, uh, by hailstones. And I just remember thinking, God, we're properly out there in it now. It was brilliant. And uh, once the thunder kind of went and stuff, we kind of just got over the top of it and just legged it down. And it just went on. It was one of those, it was freezing and it was hot. And it was, it just gave me a complete, I think it set me up to do future things in a way that I hadn't had from any other race. I think GSER, the 2017 version, was just absolutely, it made me, in years afterwards, when I got a chance to go to, back over to Europe and race over there, I think it gave me a feel of doing something like Monterosa and stuff like that. Um, when you're uh, going around the Monterosa Massive, there was elements I kept thinking, oh, this is a bit like GSER or this is a bit like something. And it was it was good to have that as a as a cog in the kind of the bigger picture of doing something which was really different to something like, say, UTA or something like that, where it's very runnable and things like that. It was a proper gnarly course, but it was... I thought GS, um, Great Southern Endurance Run was brilliant, yeah. All right. It, um, yeah, we had it on our list, didn't we, Jim, the top five toughest ultras in Australia? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Mate, I'm, uh, I'm amazed by some of the races that you've done, and I, um, I guess I'm sort of sitting here reflecting on my own um, ultra running journey, and uh, one, of the, one of the struggles that I've faced is um, maintaining the passion for the longer stuff and, you know, turning up to those races in that with maintaining those intrinsic motivators and, you know, those external motivators, yeah. the why to be able to keep doing it. What, what do you draw on, mate, to be able to continue to turn up and perform in a way that you do? I think, I suppose the, 
the race element sometimes is the cherry on the cake, though, isn't it? Because as we know, it's it's the getting up every single morning and whatever o'clock before the kids get up or before you go. I think that's that's always I always say to people that they were, you know, when you go, oh, man, you ran a whatever distance. I say it's not necessarily the running that distance. It's the it's being prepared to run that distance and doing all the training beforehand. And I, and I think I think the motivation to actually do the do the race is, is the excitement, the adventure, the choosing somewhere that actually is is something that, that gets you, you your juices flowing I think but you're right that intrinsic that motivated to get you out of bed every morning I think that when there's a couple of years ago where I, I think I, I felt like I got to a certain point and I'd done all right and I thought you know what I'm gonna have six months off and you've everyone's our oh, Simon you run too much you should rest you should do this and the funny thing is the more I do it I feel strong and I feel healthy but no, I thought I'll just quit and I'll just have six months off. And the rapid speed at which old age caught me up <laughs> was absolutely embarrassing. I found myself just after a couple of months and I, cause that was the thing rather than just sort of rest and just do like, you know, 20 or 30 K a week. I, I went, I went to do virtually nothing. I just thought, and this was only a couple of years ago, I'd say two years ago, 80 months ago, my feet were so sore. The morning when I got out of bed, I was hobbling. I had little knee things. I had little hip things. And I thought, you know what? Rest's overrated. And I don't mean that in a bigger context, because obviously I would recommend rest for fatigue management and all those sort of things. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> doing nothing was the worst. That's not rest. That's doing nothing. And ah, and now my motivation is I don't want to. It, it gave me a little wake-up call to think at the age I am now, if you if you don't use it, you will lose it. And and I do like that feeling of being able to just at the drop of a hat, someone say, "Do you want to go and do fifty k?" Like, yep, I could do that. Whereas I couldn't do twenty k two years ago. I, I'd re- just having the six months off had terrible plantar on my feet, and this was hurting, and that was hurting, and I was I was hobbling around thinking, "Oh, you think you're a superhero, but you're just an old man." Do you know what I mean? So um, <laughs> I keep on top of it because. For my own health now, I think uh, I, I do it for the kids. I think it's nice to, to you know, to, to still be able to run around after your own kids because they're getting old. You know, got fourteen and a ten year old, and they're just keeping healthy for them. But but I do love that. I do love the challenge. I do love that idea that I can still get out there and do something, which might seem a little bit out of the ordinary. And I probably have moved away more from doing the more runnable ones. I, I enjoyed the idea of how fast could I do something a while ago. And, and I think things like UTA, and I've, I only ever done Kokoda Challenge, I did, which was brilliant, um, with Dave and, and Brad and Kieran. Um, and the only other 100K race I've ever done was UTA once. And I just did that two years ago. I hadn't really ever done 100Ks. And I think it became that point, a bit like we said with the marathon, of, well, I wonder how fast I could do it. And I realized when I ever do that as a motivation for a race, it kills it for me. Because I had this idea of what I wanted to do in the race. And I got to, I don't know, like the bottom of the further steps at like 11 and a half or something like that. And then I had an absolute bonk half up the stairs and spat the dummy. And I realized that I was going to be like 12 or 1. So I sat there for 10 minutes just so that I was 12, 10, because I didn't want to be one minute over. <laughs> it was that big a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, no, I'm not having it. It's not good. So I... Uh, anyone so yeah, that's that. Say again? You didn't want to skew the stats. You know, they say yeah, there's this disproportionate statistic that after every major mile, time milestone, there's like, you know, you've got like 
thousands that run 259 marathons, but not a lot that run 301 or something like that. Yeah, I was just, yeah, I sat on the steps with some one of the 50, the Taylor and 50Ks eating jelly babies. I go, man, you've only got like 500 meters to go. And I was like, I don't care. Don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think, I, th- I think that just from a motivation point of view, I think that when things have gone wrong for me, it's when I've been putting too much of a focus on, I'm going to do this as a position or I'm going to do this as a time or I'm going to have, it's something that's not necessarily controllable. And uh, the best results I've had is when I've gone in somewhere and just thought, I I haven't looked at anybody else. I've just gone in and just really have focused on finishing in the most efficient way that I can, but not focused on a time. And every single time they have been, bar none, my best races, where I've had the best position and a time that's outperformed what I had as a goal time. But as soon as I put a goal time, it just it goes to it goes to shit. So yeah, I, I think that motivation is always about finishing, finishing as more as efficiently as I can and not worrying about other people because um, you never know. You just don't know other you, you can't pick runners sometimes. I think you stand at the beginning of a of a starting line and the guy with all the gear finishes hours behind you. And the guy who looks like nothing goes and sets a course record. And I love that about running, that it's just, you can't pick. You, you, and I think trying to follow other people's um, pace or whatever they're doing in a race, certainly over this distance, is, is, a, is a big mistake. You sh- you've got you've to be, it, it takes more discipline to go out slowly than it does to go out hard and think, oh, I'm going to save myself some time later on. That never happens. <laughs> Do you remember, Jim, what Simon was just saying there? Do you remember standing on the start line of that? Uh, there was some race you and I did in Brisbane, and there was that bloke, and he had them fucking bright-coloured parrot shorts on. <laughs> and he was like, like, oh, he's, he's got the one-inch racing shorts on, covered in fucking fluoro. He was talking a big game. We're like, oh, geez, this bloke, he's going he's gonna to bury everyone. And it couldn't have been uh, further from the truth, I don't think. In the end. <laughs> when you first said about judging people on the start line, First thing that came to my mind was old parrot shorts. So yeah, if you if you like you to run around Brisbane and with bright coloured fucking parrot shorts or one inch parrot shorts, send us a message. <laughs> uh, it sounded like uh, it sounded like there you were talking to. Um, you really developed a good relationship with the Aussie bush and the Aussie trails, and you know being being out there in comparison to the road and going by some of those races where you spoke about, um, you know, in comparison to what you experienced on the GSER, what is it that you look for in a race that, uh, that draws, that draws you in, or, you know, what are the characteristics of um, the race or the terrain that really motivates you or allows you to go, you know, that's a race for me. I definitely like lots of elevation. It's um. I, I love a hill rep session. I can just go up and down hills all day long. Um, and I just, you know, I don't, we don't have, I don't have a massive mountain near where I live. So I've just got something that I go up and down and I can, I, I can sort of clock that up because I'm in my head. I'm always imagining if I'm racing against somebody who lives in the Alps or if I'm racing against somebody who lives in New Zealand, they could just be doing that every day. So I, I tend to recreate as much vert as I possibly can. Um, and when it comes to choosing races, that's generally one of the things that I, I I like it to be a blend of stuff. I don't, I don't think it just has to be exclusively technical all the time, but I don't like it if it's just, if, if it's overly fire trail from start to finish. I, and I've done races like that and I enjoy them for different reasons and stuff. But, but if I was to just pick out what I would 
um, currently looking at and stuff. It is, it's it's stuff that's got single trail, it's got lots of steep sections, it's got a really good amount of vert in it. Um, and it's funny because you mentioned Lara Pinta before and the majority of my races that I've done over the last few years have been in Aussie bush and kind of rainforest. And I actually entered the Sonder Monster for this year. Um, and that's the first race I think that I really, really got super excited about. A friend of mine, him, uh, well, two of them actually, Matt and Jackie, they, they did the, what's it called? The, the Lara Pinta Trail version. There's two versions, isn't there? I think there's one in the April where you do it as a stage race and one in May where the, the Alice Springs Running and Walking Club do it as a an all-in-one race. Yeah, there's that. And they get one stage. Yeah, there's the yeah the run Lara Pinta, the stage race, and That's then, right. uh, I think it's the West Mac Monster, isn't it? Is that the other one? So, so, so the West Mac Monster. It's got, so like you do either do the Sonder Monster, which is the full thing, or you do the Ellery Monster, which is the because Mount Sonder is the first one, and then Ellery I think is the next one in, and so I think that gives you 117k, and the other one gives you 200 or three. I can't remember how far it is now. I just ended it, and. Um, and we I saw some photographs of it last year, and I thought every single photograph they'd taken from their phone looked like an official photographer had taken it. It was just stunningly beautiful. And I had a friend years ago who'd walked it, and I'd heard about it. But, um, yeah, I think that the Lara Pinta Trail one really, really got my attention for the first time because it did look quite gnarly. The difference of it was that it, it wasn't tree. So it, it was, you know, it's not like you've got a whole load of trees like you do around here. Um, so it was a, an entirely different sort of course. Um, so that got me really, really excited for, for that. But unfortunately, as well, as you know, I've, my situation and my family's changed. So we're, we're, um, I'm not going to be around this May in, in, in Australia to do that. So I'm looking elsewhere. But um, but yeah, for choosing races, it's I love technical. Uh, I love I'm quite a fast walker. So I don't I don't mind admitting that um it's not all about running because I think that I've competed against guys before who've been running and I've been walking next to them. And I know it really frustrates people because you're keeping up with them when you're walking fast. <laughs> and it's just like, it's one of the, I think it's a throwback from being a kid that was always late for everything. I was always in a hurry to get somewhere. So now I just keep feeling like I'm always walking fast anyhow. So I just uh, put a pair of set of poles on sometimes or just, but yeah, I, I like steep technical um, stuff and anything that's over. 24 hours is normally good. <laughs> Would you, um, do you think, do you prepare like the days leading in? Do you have a, a routine that you prepare for, for races, um, particularly, well, any race really, but do you, do you have a, almost like a, a routine that you go through every time to make sure you're prepared? It's what, as far as training and taper or as far as just, well, no, just probably those, well, I'm going somewhere with this and you'll probably work it out in a minute, but that's what <laughs> I, I guess the day or two, <laughs> loaded, loaded question, the day, the day or two leading up, like you're one of these meticulous preparers, you know, that you, you, you everything's down to the, the, the finite amount of, you know, carbs that you're going to take on when you're hungry and that sort of stuff. Or is it a, you know, is it a, just play it, see how it goes and you make sure you've got enough stuff there to get you through. I think, I, I somewhere in between, I'd say, because I'm in many aspects of my life. I'm sure my wife would say I'm not very organized. But when it comes to this, I do take it quite serious. Is, well, yeah, I probably do take it quite seriously because it is a bit of a military operation. And it's not just about running. And especially when you put so much time, family time and everything into training for something. I think to fuck it up by not organizing things correctly is 
is it, it, an error that you should learn not to do if you've been doing it for a long time. And I think I've made those mistakes by being underprepared, right? Not having the best map or not putting maps on my, on my, or not having the right nutrition or, so when things have gone wrong, you've certainly learned from those. And now I've realized that it doesn't do me any harm to be, um, to be on top of things now. And I do, in those days leading up now, I do, I have, I just got lists and lists of things and whether it's nutrition and whether it's stuff, um, kit to wear and I'll have them all in certain piles and I'm trying to estimate, well, well, I need to change a pair of socks by then or what well, if I put those shoes in there, will they be able to get to the next? And it's just kind of like you're working out all those little things. So yeah, I, I am, I am very organized when it comes to that. And, and just, and it obviously, it depends on weather and mandatory equipment, especially when you're organizing your own things. Um, I think that if, if you've got a organized race, what's beautiful is you've got, you've got mandatory equipment, which you're told you must bring. You've got aid stations, which are manned by crew and you don't have to. So you're just going to turn up and you can give them your, your, your bags and they'll put in. I think that's the wonderful thing about, about entering races. It gives you the opportunity to go and do these big events without the level of organization that needs to. If you're doing something like a Bob Graham round or if, you, if you're doing your own solo organized rounds or, or, or FKTs, I guess people call them. And um, I think when you do that, yeah, you have to because you've got you've got the kindness of so many people that you're depending on who are turning up to do ridiculously lovely things for you, just hanging around for hours, waiting for you to turn up and be spewed out of the bush. Do you know what I mean? It's like um, you've got to be organized. And I think it's disrespectful, I think, to not do that because people are giving up their time and their efforts to come and help you, especially when, it's, when it is a, a self-organized thing anyhow. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I guess paying that... Um respect and consideration to the, the volunteers and the people that organize stuff, but also yeah, the family and that to let you put in the hours of training. But I was a little bit surprised that was your answer, Simon, because um, as, a founder, as a founding member of a very prestigious run on the Gold Coast, um, the Four Plates Badass Beer Run, you're oh, one, of the original, one of the original six uh, that did the very first run. <laughs> Oh, I know you're going to Turned up to the fucking run in your going out gear because uh, you somehow yeah. missed in the title of Four Plates Badass Beer Run that it was a run. You thought we were just doing a pub crawl. Yes. I'd forgotten about this. Yes. I didn't Literally, forget. I think I, I turned up completely. Like, well, because I think I've I've done things like beer miles before, but I hadn't expected it was going to be like a half marathon distance and drinking. So I just thought it was a bit of a just terminology, the ways you phrased it, perhaps. So yeah, I think I just turned up in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt and a pair of shoes. It wasn't until I got to Hunter's house <laughs> and he actually had he, he had to lend me a pair of running shoes, socks, absolutely the whole shebang. I was absolutely, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I just wanted to turn up and get pissed. We've missed. Yeah, I hope you got. A, I hope you got a photo of this, Dars, for oh, social media no. to promote this. So we've missed you. Hey, we're recording, right? We missed you the last couple of years, mate, and it has evolved a little bit, right? And so uh -huh. you were also responsible for what was meant to be a, a casual run with friends and a few beers and a bit of lighthearted fun at the end of the year, <laughs> and you're 50% responsible for turning it into a race when you and another Simon were just eyeing each other off at the end on the last platter of beer, and all of a sudden it's like you were having your own individual <laughs> bike race against each other, and then, and then he he pipped you at the line and it's like claimed he's the winner, and he 
you know, he does. He, he reminds everyone that he won the inaugural one. But what you have, what we have got, I'm going to have to get to you if you're up on the coast anytime soon or I'm down that way, is we now have these, right? I don't know if you can oh, see that. So yes. Johnny, you remember Johnny? He made up these paddles, yes. right? So this is a, for those listening, because you can't fucking see because it's a podcast, um, it's, a, it's a paddle to hold your beers at each of the stops. And then each yes. year we put a little plaque on there for the year you completed it. All right, so if you had it just been a little bit quicker, you'd have oh. this gold one. I don't know if you can read. I, I'm all. I'm much more disappointed now. I've seen how good that is. See that? See the gold one? Oh uh, yeah. See what it says? 2021 champ. Yeah, yeah. Right. So this is mine. This is my one. Um, and so because you made it a race, we now have to give <laughs> All this sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's a bit, a bit sad that we won't get you there for another one in the at least this end of this year anyway. But no, no, I'll, I'll have to make a special legacy. flight over. But I'll never forget picking you up from Hunter's house on the way there. Dave, Dave Coombs picked us up, and yeah. you're uh, you're in Hunter's shoes and Hunter's shorts and Hunter's shirt and something out, and you're like, the shoes were about three sizes too big, and and then he said, yeah, I forgot all my, I I turn, turned up in my jeans and. Going out shoes and uh, I did. And I just thought it was a pub crawl. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this sounds like a laugh. Yeah. Well, we still got there, you know. Yeah, it's good fun. <laughs> oh. I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> no, no. Hey, mate. What? Uh, jokes aside, even though there might be some of this next bit, but what we what we really want to talk about is what you've done most recently. And you spoke then about preparing for solo things and you know non-race events and that sort of stuff. So. Or was it probably six weeks ago now? Was it that far along ago? 20th, I think it was the 19th of December, yeah. It was just before Christmas. Okay, so, yeah, not even that long ago. A month ago, if that, you took on the challenge, which you'd probably, well, you'd done before. You just, uh, you weren't satisfied. So you, you took it on again and you ran for, it was a total, was it total distance? How far was it? I think, if you're honest, the total distance is probably around about the 260 something because there was some gpx like things flying out and um and i know this it, it it said 320 or 30 or something like that and i'm pretty sure that it's it's not that so i'm still trying to put collate it i'd say it's somewhere between the 250 and 270 uh or 280 sort of yeah. kilometers yeah and about yeah. was it close to about fifteen thousand meters again I'd, I'd i'd rather be more accurate and say it's probably about 11 um, I, again, I think it, it, it's um, it would be it, it, it would be a bit inaccurate to say that's fifteen. I think I think that between the lads that were running with me and, and the, well the, the girls and guys that were running with me, I've been able to look at some of their data and it, it's brought it down a little bit. So it's um, yeah, it's round about two two sixty ish, two seventy something like so, that. So yeah, so you ran a bloody long way over a lot of yes. hills around the Mount Warning caldera. On no, there's no defined, completely defined path the whole way around, is there? Not completely all the way around. No, no, there's not. So I, I, I want to highlight. I want to highlight, Das. It wasn't you that got me back to this podcast. It was essentially this run. I had Liz had seen um, your post on uh, Instagram, I think it was, or Facebook, or one of those, and uh, had said about, "Oh, this bloke's just done this run. It's pretty phenomenal." 
And uh, I must admit, I sort of just paid it off a little bit. And then I did see your post. Um, she had shown me some, I think she had sort of forced the topic. And I had a look and I was just, com- I was completely blown away. Like I absolutely thought it was amazing. And, you know, you, we get sh- you do see a lot of different races and a lot of different FKTs. Um, but there was something about this just really stood out for me. And I think it was phenomenal. And, mate, I'd love to hear you give us a bit of breakdown of, what it was like sort of start through some of those tougher sections, through some of those higher moments that allowed you to tap in and keep going. But essentially, if you could break it down as much as you can for us, I'd love to hear what the journey was like. Oh, it's like I'm looking out the window now and I can see the tip of Mount Warning and I can see um, the Nightcap National Park. So it's part of the caldera that I can always see. And it's... um, are you looking out your window then as well? Uh, no. <laughs> I, can see, I can see Mount Bally. I can see it. <laughs> I've got a couple other mountains but, in Hawaii. <laughs> it certainly has been. It's, it's become an obsession. And it's, it's because the sections of it that I run as training anyhow, and then I gradually put things together, coupled with the fact that I say teaching science um, and I was the HSC subject that I teach is Earth and Environmental Science. And the geology area of it was to study the Mount Warning Caldera. So it's something for the last 12 or 13 years. I've, from, from an academic point of view, I've been teaching and been looking at, and I end up studying lots of maps with that and looking at different vents and different types of geological sort of deep time. We took, you know, 20 million years to 23 million years that it erupted for. And I had this thing about Mount Warning anyhow, which is obviously this, this amazing plug. But I think probably before, just when I first started teaching, I remember coming out of the beach hotel, going to the beach hotel pub in Byron. And when you go into the toilets there, when you come back out, they've got this giant satellite of the local area. And I came out the toilet and I looked up and it suddenly dawned on me that the satellite picture, that massive big circle or that range of mountains that I was always seeing when I came back from work wasn't wasn't a range of mountains it's it's a circle with a plug in the middle of it and then through going on and teaching it and realizing what it was but just looking at it for the first time and just this idea that for years I just you see sections of it and every now and then I find old logging tracks and find old paths and there's so many in there that have been used and I think there was then seeing well we just were always constantly trying to link up little sections and little sections and in over, I'd say, the last 10 years, we have linked up quite a lot of it. But I'd say in the last 18 months, I think two years, with Hunter, uh, Hunter Dodds, he was somebody who bought into the idea probably more than anybody um, with the willingness to actually come and recce bits with me and do things. Where, because you've got to remember, it's not just going for a, it, it, It's like a training run that could almost be a wasted day. You're not like you're running... You're walking, you're taping. We were kind of cutting through sort of um, lantana and stuff like that. And it's kind of, and then also just some of the sections are inaccessible. If you want to get to sort of what we refer to as the lost world, which is on the western wall of, if you imagine it as a circle, northeast, southwest, and on that western wall is the most isolated. Um, So you've got like South Lamington and Kyogle to Nimbin. That section there, there's not really any ways to access it. you drive and then it just stops. And by the time you enter that, you could go for five hours and you get to a thing called Point Lookout, which is where the Stinson track comes up. But in order to access it, you'd have to do the Stinson track, which is where the airplane crashed years ago. The O'Reilly's, exactly. So 
so if I wanted from here, from back, I have to go all the way. One time, I think me and Hunter did a recce where we we drove around to South Lamington, came up the Stinson track just so we could access that part of the wall. But the out and back took five hours to go and do it, this small section of the Western Wall. And by the time we got, it was a 24 hour round recce by the time I traveled and done this. And it was that kind of, there's, there's so many non-accessible areas to it. But what was amazing is you're not always the only person to have gone through it. You'll be going through these sections where there's nothing whatsoever. And then you'll find old, ancient old rusted signs with the word water on and there's been there's been loggers or there's been something there and then every now and then you'll find a piece of tape where there have been bushwalkers that have gone through and i think that was probably the most unknown section it's referred to as the lost world and it's the way you see the pinnacles the pinnacles looks out from the western wall straight at mount warning and it's this section i say between nimbin and essentially numminbar valley so from numminbar valley that would take you to Point Lookout. And I think of that as a halfway mark and then Point Lookout takes you to, to Nimbin. That's the other half. And um, knitting that together, I think that's still as a section where if we had enough people continue to go through, it would become more of a regular trail because you can get up to the old Riley's track and stuff. There's there's some good trails that are there. Um, but I think the... the, the, the the tricky part was, I think that me and Hunter, the intention was to do it last April. So we did it and we were going to do it clockwise. And we started in Mullen Bar. And the idea is that we start in Mullen Bar on the bridge, the Tweed River Bridge, because the Tweed River, geologically, is the reason that the Caldera exists. So Mount Warning initially was, instead of being a 1100, it was twice as high. It used to be 2000 meters. And it looked like a I don't know, like Captain America's shield. It's a big shield volcano. It all came out and it made this perfect circle. As it's eroded, it eroded like the spokes of a wheel, but some of them become more eroded than others. And gradually it carved out, which was the Tweed Valley section, which is why that side of the caldera has collapsed and it runs out to the ocean. So the fact that the, the river is the cause of the caldera, we start on the bridge. So the start and finish. There. We started making up funny little rules where it had to do certain things. It had to start and finish there. It, it wasn't allowed to fall inside the Caldera Wall. You had to stay on the ridge lines. You could go out if you needed to, but you were never allowed to go in. And then there were so many thousand meter um, peaks that we wanted to do on that west. It was like, again, it was kind of tapping into that Bob Graham. The Bob Graham round was done like 80, 90 years ago. Um, and it was a thing in the, in, in the northeast of England, sorry, in the, in the north of England, in the Lake District, where people would just have challenges how many peaks could you do in 24 hours and bob graham happened to do 42 on his 42nd yeah or he would try to do 40 when he was when he was 40 and he failed so then he did 42 and it was that you have to have somebody witness you touch every single peak if you want to do the bob graham you have you can't do it solo you have to have somebody with you to watch you touch physically touch every single peak so there's funny little quirky rules about that and it's so i think me and hunter it was the same we were trying to come up with similar things of having this idea where you would have this the circle and what would what would the conditions be if it was to be like what we call an fkt now it starts and finishes in the same place and we wanted in so we did it anti-clockwise the rain came in in the very very last section and we couldn't do the springbrook section which is why it then become an even bigger bugbear for me because i just thought it was done in april and uh we got to springbrook or to the numanbar valley and there was like four or five hundred mils of rain due we'd already that's only half the story. But anyhow, we we, we got stopped. Basically, they said, there's no way you can go up 
that Springbrook section because you've got to go through Gorge Falls and all the waterfalls and it would just be too dangerous to take people up there. Um, and it had been raining for the two days before that. So like the night before, we actually, the people who were crewing me, Matt and Jackie, because Hunter had, had, had some, Hunter had got ill at about 100k, so Hunter had, had to stop. And uh, the people who were there just to crew me, they joined in. So they only had a head torch, which was enough to go for a little run together. They were having a romantic weekend away, Matt and Jackie, two friends. They were going to be crewing me. And when Hunter pulled out, they said, oh, well, we'll do the next section. Well, unfortunately, the next section was this Lost World section, Tinnamanbar Valley. Six, seven, eight, nine, like 24 hours later. Um, <laughs> we'd been caught in the rain. They didn't have mandatory equipment. And this goes down, it sounds bad that you didn't, you know, but didn't have all the stuff the rain came down and their head torches went out and we still were at Throckburn and we were we still had a, a long way to come down and we there was trees down it was pitch black and we couldn't see where we were going and they just said Simon we've got to stop and well so we and I said but if we stop we're going to get called so anyhow the three of us stopped because we only had like one head torch between the three of us and you're on the caldera edge wall and I'm sure they won't mind me saying it now because it has become a bit of an ongoing joke. But to be snuggled up between this couple who were trying to keep me warm <laughs> felt so, so, so wrong because I'd been going for a long time, but they were cold too. And uh, we had one space blanket between the three of us. And it's worth noting they're not waterproof. And um, the three of us sat shivering for five hours and every 40 minutes one of us would say, can we shift to the other hip, please? That one's gone numb. And we turned to the other side and we'd shiver and, and we were cuddling each other for hours until it, until we got um, until it got light and then we could actually get down to that next section. And that's when we then got to Bar. This was on the April version and everyone said, you can't do the next bit. So we had to come inside. And as I was saying, with my own rule, that meant we had to come inside the Caldera Wall because to finish the circle, I still wanted to complete it. We had to finish it at Bar. But we had to come inside and we so we ran through the road section through Chillingham and back. So when I finished it, it was good to see it there as a, a circle, but it had a slight dent in the top. And I didn't like that. You didn't like the dent? So, uh, nah. so then it was like, right, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it again. And it has to be done this year. And time was running out with COVID because she shut the borders and I couldn't get across the border. And there's a section that does running in, in, into sort of Queensland. So we decided to do it anti-clockwise this time. So this time I did the numbing bar section and Brad Glover got me through that, like flying through that. Absolutely amazing. And a lot of that section is quite tough. Um, just because there's there's some up and down, there's a lot of up and down terrain and there's a lot, it's, it's, it's relatively... Um, movable though you can you know you can shift through it but you know you definitely want to have some gaiters on your legs scratched and if you have a look at pictures of uh, brad's legs and stuff they're fairly badly cut and that's just and that's off just the first section i mean and the first section it's maybe 35 or whatever but it still took maybe nine ten hours because you've got to run from wall bar to tommy win get to tommy win and then you enter the bush and then midway through you get spat out as uh, best of all lookout but there's nothing really there except the lookout and then you go back into the bush again so all of that is just kind of cliffs and up and down and it's relatively well marked now though so i, I so i encourage people to go out and do it <laughs> and that's it and then you come down and then it was good to see crew and my wife and and, and uh, christine and stella were there and we had friends and that's where sheree and brad sort of um they stopped and then I had Matt and Jackie come and that's where, so then funnily enough, so the couple that I was able to cuddle into, they volunteered 
to do the same section again. Oh, they love the cuddle. I think they like the cuddle. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they did it. So, and then we did it the That'd opposite way around. Bit. Did it the opposite way around. And so then they did from, so then we did from Numbing Bar Valley up to the O'Reilly section, up to Point Lookout, and then back through Lost World. And um, yeah, it, it, again, but that's another sort of 12 hour. So, and this is the thing I, I, I think, unlike races, you're not getting to see anybody every two, three, four, even five hours. You, you could be going for 12, 15 or more hours. Um, and so it's, it's been able to carry not just the food, but water. I mean, in that first section, Springbrook, there's a lot of water and a lot of places you can drink. But in the next section, because then there's like a 40 K link, which goes from the Lost World and there's a road that takes you down to sort of almost Nimbin, the bottom of Mount Burrow at a place called Lillian Rock. Um, and that's just a 40K road section. You can just run. So, um, and it's all pretty much all downhill. Um, there might be six or 700 meters of elevation, kind of up and down, but then there's a big, long downhill section. Now I'd um, like to So then when it got to the bottom, um, so rather than running into Nimbin, we get to the, um, yeah, it, I think in the future, it could be a really, really good cake stop, yeah? But yeah. Um, you could have lots of us. And, and I think... And that is where I want to go with it. Is I think that if it, the interesting thing about the whole round itself is that there aren't a lot of villages and there aren't a lot of towns. You've got Mwollumbar, but then after that, there's not really, and it, probably Nimbin is the one closest sort of town with it's within two or three k's of the route itself. And I was talking to some guys who, who live in communities out there. And, you know, we're talking about the kind of community that Nimbin's been in the past and stuff from being a, a dairy town to, to being what it's famous for now. And, <clears throat> and how it could change. It could be a, it could be a mountain biking, trail walking, trail running, outdoor activity, healthy. Because you go there and they've got some beautiful cafes and awesome food. And there is still that organic kind of idea to it. And I think Nimbin's the town that, that could become a much bigger, a much more well-resourced and tapped town for being something which is different to what it's known for now. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think Nimbin could become a really good like uh, aid station stop for people if they wanted to do that. It's a good resource that crew could go to and then meet you on course. Um, but uh, so that gets us around. I suppose that's kind of almost the halfway point. You go through through Springbrook. Then my next bit I refer to is the Western Wall, which is kind of like that Lamington, South Lamington, um, Lost World, then you run down to Lillian Rock, and then this next section of this one takes you up Mount Burrow. You've got to sneak around someone's garden. I've got to admit there's a property there you've got to go around, but it's like 20 metres, and there's no don't entry signs, so you just go around, and it hits you straight up this ridge line and gets you to Mount Burrow. And we got there, and it was light still, and then we dropped down, and there's a ridge which is maybe only a metre, two metres wide, and it's like drop-offs on either side. So it's a ridge line that you go along. And then you approach by the Sphinx. Now, from this side, you can't see. It just looks like a, a gradual incline. But I know what it's like because I've approached it from the other side and it's just sheer cliff on the other side. But there is a way around it. So I've taped it. And as long as you get the right, there's like, if you imagine like a wedding cake or like a cake of three layers, you've got to get the bottom layer and you go around this cliff and I've taped it. Well, we got there and it was just about to get dark. I thought, no, no, we've done perfect. We can just find the, and we missed the tape. And I couldn't find it. And by the time we put the head torches, it suddenly got dark. And we spent an hour, hour and a half going round one ridge line, right and I was looking down. And the two lads that I'm with, Zach and um, and Liam, they had never done it before. 
but they're really good, you know, outdoors trail running and stuff like that. But after an hour and a half of realizing that we were literally sticking our toes over the edge of cliffs, but in pitch black, couldn't work out if we were on the right ledge or not. I said, boys, this isn't like, I don't make these decisions very lightly. Like the last time I was having a, a nervous breakdown because I was asked to stop because it was raining and we didn't have head torches. But this time there's no reason. I just have to find the tape. But then I realized it was dangerous and we did have an hour and a half of looking. And I just, I just pulled, I've got an old, like a bivy, like a sleeping bag and I just grabbed that and I lay on it. I said, boys, I'm not moving any further. We need to wait until it's light. And um, it got light sort of 5.30 and it wasn't until we woke up, we realized that we were now on the top tier of the cake and it's a 10 meter square platform with just sheer drop-offs on either Ooh. side. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, certainly, and one of the lads, Zach, admitted he didn't, ha- he wasn't the greatest with heights. So we then started to climb down. So, and it became like a climbing exercise. So then we were climbing down from the first tier to the next one. And then the next tier, I said, right, what we do is we go back to the start and we go back to where you enter the Sphinx on on the, the westerly side. And we got there, and I'm not kidding you, within 10 minutes, I found the first piece of tape, and we got round the Sphinx in less than 30 minutes. And it's easy to get round if you if you can find the tape, but we did. We spent six, seven hours sleeping, like just wedged between saplings so you didn't roll one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. uh, you didn't know it was a 10-meter platform. Didn't really know it was that small. No, not until the next day. I'll um, I'll send you some pictures. Um, some of the ones, if you see that, you can see there's a couple of pictures of us standing in front of this rock that juts out of a ridge line. And if you imagine, you can see like a green layer here and a green layer here and a little green patch on the top with just sheer faces. That's the top, the middle, and the one that we were meant to come round. So, um, but yeah, again, if it's well marked, people can get round it. It's it's. I'm not saying it's hard. It's not not that it's easy, but it's doable. It's all doable. And is that, did you mark that section yourself on a previous? On your, yeah, well, I've been in recce that maybe four or five times. Um, there's some nice little quirky things around there, though, because when you get to the Sphinx, when on, on the east side, there's actually a little cigar box. And when you open it up, there's a book in there. And they, yeah, walking groups do find it. So that's the thing. And the first time that me and Hunter went up there, somebody had drawn like concentric, like, like an elliptical sort of teardrop shape then the drawn teardrop like sort of a sorry like uh like terrain what they call them contour lines contour and lines. it had a little arrow showing you how to go around basically and that's how we worked out how to go around the first time when you get to the top of mount burrell which is the mountain before it there's a one of the old uh trig points you know the metal sort of geodetic signs that they have up there and i thought oh, there's an old torch here and i thought oh, the torch has been tied to the bottom but when i unwound it there was a scroll inside it Mount Burrell, 933 metres high. And it's signed by everybody who's done it, I think, since 2007 or something someone's put one in. There was only maybe 13 or 14 people who have been up there in the last... So there's quite quirky little bits That's and bobs. Cool. So you know that people Unreal. have been there. Yeah, it's quite cool. Yeah. That stuff's really cool. So you got around the Sphinx eventually without dying. Yeah. And then after that, there's, there's an old track which... so. The next major point, I guess, is Mount Nardi. And Mount Nardi is approachable by a road called Newton Drive, which comes out of Nimbin. And it's also the beginning of what's called the Old Postman's Track. So it's tr- it's an old track that used to be, that went through the sort of hinterland going towards places like Lismore and stuff. And um, so it's a well-worn track. But between the Sphinx and there, 
if you look at some of the maps, it's almost like, oh, there's nothing here, there's nothing there. But there was a proper old logging track called the Conga Flying Fox Track. And it's there's a little village of called Conga inside the caldera. And it's where they used to, when they would do when they were logging that whole area, they used to send it down, this flying fox. And there's the old remnants of where the loggers were there, of this framework of the old flying foxes still there. And there's a road. And the road's a bit overgrown now, but you can still see there's a solid base there. It would take very, very little to have it sort of reinstated or have a, a, a much uh, more sort of... Well, just an easy... I mean, because there are some places where, you know, it just takes... You know, it's like here, a tree falls down and the whole ecosystem comes with it. It's not just like one tree, is it? When you go out in the bush here, you know that the tree comes down and, like, you've got... You can't even tell it's a tree because there's so much came down. So there's sections like that where you've had to cut around, but that whole... That whole section there would be an easy section to reinstate, and then it would join up with the, the Mount Nardi section. And the Mount Nardi then takes you towards like sort of Minion Falls, Rimmery Park, but you stay up on that ridge line, and that takes you to Mount Jerusalem. And then Mount Jerusalem, which is dropped down there, there's a couple of little ridges, and we found a cliff that you could climb down, and that takes you out just on the edge of this person's property, and you can get around their property, and then it takes you out to what's called Hell's Hall, which is behind sort of Mullumbimby and Main Arm. And that's, then you're back on a um, unsealed road. And then and then from there, you go to Mount Chowan. And Mount Chowan's going towards sort of Mooball and that sort of that side. I don't know if you know where Mooball is. It's like, um, it, it's what the old old highway used to be. It's, if you kept going coastally, it's it's just inland from, say, Pottsville, for example. Oh, yeah. um, so it's kind of the last national park that takes you into back to Moolumbah. So that's kind of the, the whole circle then. So then once you're in a Mooball, and I had to cut across, there's a ridge line. Um, it goes under the old, and the Burrumbah Bridge goes underneath it. And there's actually, there is a house on top of that. I had to sneak around that as well. But um, um, but once you get to Mooball, then it is, it's all fire trail. And it brings you back down to Wardrop Valley and back to the uh, the bridge at Moolumbah. And uh, it's, um, I think it took, I mean, it, it took 70 hours, but I, it could be done much quicker than that. I, I think that I think to say like, and that was the thing I was thinking of having like this, you know, like sub sub seventy two hours. That gives you three days to do it, and we'll have like a sub seventy two club and people that can go under seventy two hours. I think it's it's a reasonable time to be able to do it, and um, and like I say, I'll just I just like to share it and just put it out there as much as anything else. Just as many maps or tips. I'm going to make its own little website or Facebook page, and just if people want to put stuff on there and make it into, I. Yeah, so around. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> just the whatever route, you know, just I, I would like it to be a national trail. Yeah. I, I think it's the jewel in this area. It's an absolutely stunning thing. So I love it. <laughs> like that just sitting there listening to you and Jim, you know, I, I hear about these things and I think of you and I think, oh, maybe Jim and I can go and do that one day. You know, you take a week <laughs> off and you get a crew together and you know, you go and do it and then you think, yeah, logistically, you got to make it all happen. And sometimes it goes into the too hard basket or it goes into the, you know, when I'm older and I've got more time and kids are growing up basket. But um, having that documented and having, like you're saying there, whether it's through a Facebook group or through some sort of um, community uh, in some way that, you know, you can reference it and go, okay, so if I want to do it, if I decided that in 10 years' time, that the re- some of the resources there, yes, if it doesn't... Um, mature from what it is at the moment you know like so if it doesn't if national parks don't pick it up and say hey here's a really great opportunity to promote the area promote the environment um and 
you know, get people outside, get them he- happy, healthy, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, when it's, when it's walkers and runners, you know, you're not, you're not disrupting nature too much, you know, take out what you take in and away you go. Um, I can see your head nodding there, Jim, and it's uh, creeping onto your bucket list now, I can tell. Am I right? I just, uh, I just think the whole thing's fascinating. You know, I think what the appeal was that, you know, it's, I think the things that stood out to me was the community approach that you took to it, you know, with the people that were involved that contributed to, you know, making, making the trail and doing recce's on different sections and it become from listening, it seemed to be a real community approach, but the passion held within you to drive to continue to drive and sort of motivate that vision that you had for it. And I think, you know, something else that really stood out to me that I just love is, you know, how you spoke about the journey prior. So teaching it in school, you know, the history of the history of the ground, the terrain, um, you spoke about, um, you know, the, the river there and that you wanted to particularly start from that point because of the significance that that held. I think, like to back up what Dar said, to have that captured somewhere where people could go and take some of that vision and passion that you had for it, you know, and do still hold for it on that particular round with them. Um, I just think, you know, that's something that's missing from races, I believe, these days is a deeper relationship with with what you're actually undertaking. Uh, I think that's what the appeal for me is, is uh, being able to tap into some of what drove you and drives you towards um, making that what it is. Yeah, thank you. It, it, it is for me. It's, I mean, I've, I've thought about it in so many different, because we have thought about you could do it as a race, but if you want to do it as a race, you have got certain aspects where you talk about insurance, but I did speak to national parks and like you said, with it's, you are low impact. So you're not bikes and you're not trail bike, you know, all the other, like when I spoke to them, they said, well, you are, your class is very, very low impact because you just feet and stuff like that. So I did kind of, t- and she just said, all you need to do is just get all of, because it's a lot of in- individual national parks, you just get them to speak to each other. But then I thought, do I need, like, do I need to do that? Because if we just do it, if people just want to do it, they don't need to have, you don't necessarily need even permission. I guess you just start walking, don't you? And just do it. And that's, um, doing it in sections I think something or doing it is really or I've had all sorts of different things for doing it. but but mostly I, I think as you were saying before as a resource what I'd like to do is build up a resource that was something that people can just tap into but also like it's from an educational point of view because I, I think I was putting things into maybe four or five categories where people could add more information that they know about the area as well it's because you have got that deep time that kind of geological history but then also from a, an aboriginal point of view where you've got Obviously, currently Mount Warren's been closed, um, and and as a as as either a, a sacred site or the other reason was because it was designated as being very dangerous because people were getting helicopter lifted and stuff. But now, as as a thing in the centre, to be able to see and walk around Mount Warning and see it from pretty much 360 degrees, you get to see the the majesty of it in the centre as you go around the outside of it. So I think to be able to add Aboriginal stories and different aspects to that, and then you've got sort of logging and pioneers and the kind of people who set it up then, you've got the ecology, you've got the different types of nature that's, that's involved in those like literal, those micro ecosystems as you go around. And we were seeing, you know, I, I, 
you know, the, the, what's he, the, the, the blue crayfish that you get up there? I forgot what they're called now. Yeah, well, yeah then there's just spiny. loads of really... Say that again? They're all the spiny something, aren't they? Um, yeah, they're, they're beautiful. You know, they're the size of a lobster just walking through fresh water. Uh, and uh, I tell you, it was a funny thing. I was, I held, I leant against a, a vine and it was in the middle of the night and I just heard this... Thump. And I turned round and there was this baby marsupial lying on its back wriggling around. And I think it must have been held to two of the vines and I just held one of them and just absentmindedly pulled it, and this thing just fell out and landed at my feet. It was the cutest thing I've ever seen. But uh, but just there's so many unusual different things that are up there, and um, I think there is all sorts of different... You could almost have, like, booklets of different... the five different aspects, or you could have different things, and it could be a really, really interesting educational sort of field trip. I think of it still like a teacher sometimes, you know? But, but it has got so much about it that it's just outstanding and i can't see why it's not a thing it just should be <laughs> were there part, is there some like really memorable bits like whether on your recce uh runs or when you actually either either the two times you actually went around it there are things you just look at and you're just like this is you know if nothing else you've got to come out here and do this to see whether it's to see mount warning from a different side or see certain parts like just you know sometimes that's just that spectacular takes your breath away oh. Plenty, ah, oh, too many to mention. And I think that's the reason. I think that's the thing. I, I think that that pinnacles lookout on the west side just looks, you can t you can look to the south and look at it and it just looks like, it looks like a carpet of trees that's just like a glacial action of, they've just fallen over the caldera and spilling into the kind of floodplain in the middle. It just looks Jurassic. It looks so ancient. Um, I think that's, when you get round to the south side there, you've got um, where Nightcap Bluff is and where Mount Jerusalem is. There's, there's a couple of quirky little bits where they are entry points. All, there's, there's a place called Loo with a view. And it's, it's an, <laughs> literally, it's a toilet that's been placed inside a wooden shed, but with no door. And it just looks across the caldera at Mount Warning. And it's absolutely, there's, there's a couple of times where you go past there and you just realise that some of these this, this, these little, the Doughboy is a, is, is a little mountain that's on, on our side here. And in uh, going to Mount Jerusalem, there's a couple of times where we've taken photographs and you just look at it and think, I can't believe how beautiful this is. It's just rolling rainforest in front of you. And Mount Warning is this centerpiece in every single angle that you go to. And uh, there's been, yeah, I just think the whole thing is stunning. It's really, really, really beautiful. Um, and, uh, but it's like, and that's what makes some of the, the challenges of getting to those sorts of places, it's it, that's what makes things worthwhile, isn't it? But, I mean, getting to in some of the individual parts, they're obviously challenging on, on foot, right? Like, it, and and you get there and you're saying, this is, you know, it's all worth getting there. But as far as being able to access that whole um, whole loop or the, the whole caldera mm. from a logistical point of view, or for anyone in, in Australia anyway at the moment, it's it's actually kind of at our foot, at our doorstep. Like it's, you know, you've got, it's not far from the Gold Coast. It's not far from yes. the LNA. You've got two airports there that, you know, like if you're not a local, that it's somewhere, it could become a destination location for people to purposely go, I'm going up to, you know, Northern New South Wales because I want to do, I want to spend a week or two weeks hiking around, hiking around the, the caldera and really, you know, soak it all in. Like it's, we have these places like, you know, you got the overland track down in Tasmania that people go there specifically yeah. to 
hike it. We've got to exactly the trail, as we mentioned, is another one. You know, there's a seven day, let's say, seven day hike or something. And you know, some of these places, like in the Alps in Victoria, and they've got the huts set up and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, that. Yeah, talking with you about it now, and then the couple of previous sort of messages you and I've had, I just think that it sounds to me that it's prime for that kind of setup. Yeah, I, yeah, I had a real fast packing appeal. I was, you know, I had the the twenty five liter on my back already, thinking about, you know, you could break it down there and still, uh, you know, sit around at night time and have a yarn, and then back up the next morning and go. I think that's a real appeal for me is to be able to approach it like that. I, I, and I think it would be set up perfectly for that sort of thing. It, it could be the sort of thing where, yeah, you don't have to go around and you know and smash records, but you've just got to go. It could be a week. It could be a 10-day or more sort of hike. People could choose sections. You could choose. You could probably grade it on difficulty so people knew what they'd get themselves into with more resources, people. And to be honest with you, just more people doing it than that. In, in a sense, for me, I think that more people doing it protects it because more people see what there is there to love. And I think that I I've still can go up to sections up here and I still see people logging. People are still doing not the right thing in certain places. And I think the more people that go up there, the more people fall in love with it, the more people will want to protect it. Um, and then also the more people that choose exactly the same path, it becomes the designated path. There are sections where I'll, I'll admit that when, you, when it's not marked well, people tend to fan out and then you've got people moving across more bush than is maybe necessary. So if you had if you had something where everybody almost agreed this is the quickest way or this is the most efficient way, then it becomes more of a like where you have like national parks and honeypot ideas. You have all the tourists go to this place because it protects that place. And I think if you had that idea where you had that path going through, which was more designated, then you haven't got people fanning out and it would become more accessible. Um, and th there is some projects that are happening in that sort of uh, Mount Warning, Ukai area, where they are doing some up to Mount Jerusalem, where the councils are putting in um, three and four day hikes and stuff. So I think there is there is possibly a, a movement towards seeing this sort of thing happen. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that hiking idea and, and, and that multi-day thing where you see it in other countries, I just keep looking at it and thinking that's what, and, and from a community point of view, I think that some of those private properties could then also make money out of it because you I love the way that the cream track at Springbrook does it as a permit and the, the, the people can apply for a permit to go through that section of partly private, partly council land. And I think if people often put that, oh, if you twist my ankle, you'll sue me. And I've spoken to some people that has never been tested as a precedent in law in Australia ever, but landowners will always use it apparently as an excuse not to let you come across the land. Oh, you'll sue me if you hurt yourself. But apparently it's not necessarily a, um, a, a proven thing. Um, and I think if people did, you could you could have a coffee shop or you could <laughs> a coffee shop and buy it in Nimbin perhaps. But um, you could have a you could have certain things where people could have not that sort of coffee shop. They, you could have aid stations. You could have people sell stuff. You could have it could be if, like. I've seen rail trails in the UK where farmers have eventually let the rail trail come through instead of blocking it off. And what they do is their farm becomes a farmhouse um, cafe and it becomes a new modern business. And I think similar where people could do that on the trail where they could become modern businesses where they, they were actually incorporated into a hiking culture or a, a, a rambling, walking, running, mountain biking, whatever it is. And I, I just think that it could be a shift to make 
yeah, get people out of the houses more and, and, and but also to appreciate this whole thing. So it's um yeah, I'm as you can tell, I'm pretty obsessed with it. And that was fascinating. Really, um yeah, that's really like it. I, I I'm sitting here going, Oh, well, I wonder when I can find time, who will come with me and we can go and do this little bit or we can go and do that bit. And even just talking about like Mount Jerusalem and um nightcap and all those places that i like oh, i'll go down there run one day and i just assume i'm going to do it and i never make plans to even get down there um you know like <laughs> 45 minutes here from my house probably and yeah, like, yeah it's not too far now yeah and just instead i just you know you go you go the other one you go out to lamington every time so um yeah it's it's you've you've inspired me and lit the fire a bit to get out and do a little bit more of the exploring and a little less of the getting on the road and just obsessing over times and sessions and that sort of stuff yeah it was also making it that cold. Like I say, it was, this year was a good year to do it because it was almost like I'd hoped that it was going to be COVID-proof because a lot of races had been kind of like cancelled and stuff like that and I couldn't do anything. But then ironically, because there was a section on the north bit that you have to go onto the cream track and that takes you into Queensland. And when she shut the borders, I couldn't get across. But um, it, it, it was about having something on it. What is on your doorstep? Appreciate what's on your doorstep. Yeah. Um, instead of looking for something in here there and everywhere around the world and and i realized there is something on my doorstep which is a hundred mile to 200 mile or whatever it is but it's just an there was an adventure on my doorstep that had been needed to be scratched and this was the perfect year to do it really yeah man, that's unreal absolutely unreal so it's obviously one of your big big passion projects and you've you've nailed it like i think i read that you'd, it's something you'd actually sort of looked at on and off and in different versions for 10 years or something like you'd had yeah around oh. it yeah, it's unreal to get that. Well, you did it twice, you know. You might, you yeah, well, the first time I didn't. All your rules, but you did it twice. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I wanted to do anti-clockwise and clockwise, but I think that, yeah, to know that I'd actually done what we'd set out, like me and Hunter had set sort of the general route, and it was about not coming inside of the ridge and, and come inside, inside the Coldier Wall. And to know that we did it, it's, to know that I got it done just before Christmas Day, I, I can now I look out the window and think, yep, yeah, I've done that now yeah. and I don't, I, I don't, it, it used to niggle me all of the time and it doesn't now. <laughs> you got any uh, more questions for Simon on the, on the Mount Warning Caldera run, Jim? No, I don't. I was just, uh, just echo what you said, Dar. So it was fascinating to hear you talk about it, mate. Um, so much passion. It, it is extremely inspirational, I think. So thanks for sharing so much of it with us, mate. Oh, my pleasure. I just, I'd love to share it. <laughs> Mate, one other thing that I believe you're pretty passionate about, and you've certainly put a lot of work into in your time in Byron, is that Byron Bay Runners? Yeah. So you, am I right in saying that you you're one of the founders or the founder of that running? Not the founder. No, 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 no. One of one of the founders is probably just over ten years ago. There was maybe I'd say eight, nine of us who were regularly running around, and we kind of come together, trained together. There was a good amount of runners around here we'd done the lamington classic a couple of times but we wanted to have like we wanted to belong to something so yeah. we needed a t-shirt and initially we the first time we did it i think we called ourselves the byron bear bastards because we were parentless and we didn't have a uh, we didn't have a club so the first time we did lamington classic was that and then eventually it was like well, so we all a lot of us just sat down and said right how do we make a club and initially it was just going to be just for us just adults just 
really so we could have a t-shirt with something written on it <laughs> but they, it actually became it has become a much much more holistic kind of club and um we've got it's i kind of focus on a thursday of doing like trail running with the adults but then on tuesdays and thursdays there's this like kids proper track sessions then there's there's other adults who are doing road sessions and stuff so we're not a massive club because we don't have a huge catchment of like actual resident maybe 140 people they've joined the club now which is which is great for a for a running club of where we are um but yeah it's, it's just grown from being a few mates to now people who've moved into the area who have joined as runners and now it's kind of it's its own beast now and i i love seeing what's it's it's developed into in particular the kids section which was something i was like teaching kids all day i don't want to be teaching kids but it's it is really really rewarding. I think the amount of results that we've had. We we have we have between us five or six, certainly four or five of the of the kids that came through over the last two years have gone on to run at nationals. And considering we just got a grass track, that's all we've got. But seventeen eighteen year olds running nationals. Elliot McGarrigan was was running. He was one of the first people to be going under four minute mile. For, and 18s so he got tripped in the race which was a bit gotten but we've had a, between him there's people like bailey crabtree finn crether louis trisley um tyler dogan there's a family of kids the dogan family uh, alex and sky and so and they're all running sort of um national sort of pace or national times and stuff and for, for what is quite a small club it's um it's been fantastic to see kids fall in love with running just for running's sake and uh, yeah. other kids come along because it's you know it's a fitness towards their other sports but we have got some pretty um hardcore kids now which is something i didn't expect so the running club has taken taken its its, its own kind of uh its own life now and uh, there's just so many different little splinter groups now and i think it's nice to have a group a running club it's not just road or trail or track it's just people who like running in all of its different facets. I think it's it's not just one sport, is it? It's it's called running, but it's there's so many different elements to running, isn't there? Yeah, and that um, you know, that club community thing, you know, gives people a bit of an identity and a bit of a purpose as well. Even you know, they started with a few blokes that went and ran a race together. They just wanted a t-shirt, and now there's a, a yeah. place for kids to go and you know work it's on being good at running or feel like they're part of something and um something else i heard i don't know if you told me or not as well that um that you were um if anyone in the area is looking to come down and join the byron bay runners it's open door policy anyone can come and join and be part of the club like any other club like it's not it's not to scare runners off you've got all these elite no sort of we're trying to be using yeah, inclusive as possible and just get as many people uh, just into running and stuff like that i mean generally speaking it's mostly local people who join um the one thing I've got to mention, because it's happening and it's the first time ever, we talk about clubs running and stuff like that. We don't have many in, much into club running because yeah. obviously we're northern New South Wales. That's, that's Australia. But, well, yeah. Victoria's not too bad. That's true, yeah, because you've just got yeah, close clubs and stuff. But we, for the first time, at the end of this month, 26th, 27th, near Australia Day, I can't remember which one it is, um, we're hosting the first New South Wales track event in our area. So often you have to go down to Sydney and stuff like that, but we've actually got a New South Wales, um, Athletics New South Wales um, vetted uh, event, 3,000 um, opened, 
and 1500 meters and i think there's a shot put so we're just gonna i think it's it's in herb elliott it's called the herb elliott field which is what we train on so he's actually donated the trophy for the 1500 meters so we actually have got an official um all clubs welcome to have an our first inter-club event at the end of this month so if anyone wants to have a look at byron bay runners and have a look for any track events we are running a properly sanctioned um track event at the end of this month is it juniors and seniors yes yes yeah. yes 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 yeah and everybody so it's, you know bring your kids down if you're around there if you're part of a club and you want to enter if you're an adult 100%. part of a club and you want to enter if you're a mum, chris hemsworth will be there so get down there always like it's always yeah, there hit the big just number. flexes at the start line yeah yeah have you had him down for a run <laughs> we see him at the football a lot i mean he doesn't come for a run um but when you watch the kids soccer and stuff like that uh his kids play soccer. So they can bring them beach muscles for a run up at NICAP or something like that. So yeah, yeah. I'll show them around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, mate, that's awesome for the club that that's happening. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah, and unfortunately, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm probably going to be out of the country by then. And that's been through Athletics New South Wales, is it? You'd... Yeah, Athletics New South Wales, yeah. So it's, it's become an official sanctioned event where we're going to have, you know, there's going to be PA. It's going to be the whole, hopefully, set out proper. Because um, we always run like, a, we do a summer sizzler over the summer where we do 3K time trials and we put them, we handicap them every month. And people, so the slowest go first and then the fastest. And some of these kids who are running it, and a half minute three cares and compared to some of the mums and dads who are doing 20 minutes you know you're giving them four laps head start in a seven and a half lap race and you think this is insane they'll never catch them and you watch these boys reel them in reel them in and then in the last 150 meters everyone's in a line coming in it's crazy to watch but it's really <laughs> doing the handicap like that it stops the people who are slower being disheartened because they're at the back, they're actually looking over the shoulder thinking, I'm yeah. not going to let him catch me. And it's, it's fabulous. Great it's fabulous. It's great. Oh, good. And you've got these these good runners who think, I'm not letting her beat me, even if she's got four four laps to start on me. And they'll they'll put, they'll put really will put an effort in, even though it's just a daft track um, grass event. But we yeah, we uh, have it for That's most cool. of them. Might, might even steal that idea, take it down to good Mate, I did have a couple other things that I just wanted to ask you. Um, so we've covered off the big one, the Mount Warning thing. Spoke about Byron Bay stuff. We've spoken a little bit about your history, but and uh, in, in running. But um, the other, I guess, big chunk of your your life and your time is uh, coaching. So you coach with the uh, Mile Twenty Seven. You're one of the yes. where well, you're three coach, three or four coaches there. Yeah, yes, Andy, Andy Dubois and Ben Duffus. Um, uh, the other two coaches there, yeah. Yeah, and it, with your coaching, are you, are you coaching any and all running or are you focused on a specific sort of group? Like are your, are your athletes well, more trail runners, more ultra runners? Mostly, I mean, I think the idea with, with, with the mile 27 is, you know, they, a marathon's 26 miles. So mile 27, I mean, the, the, the tagline is, you know, taking you the extra mile. Um, so that it, 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 the idea, I think, predominantly is that most people are doing um, ultra uh, ultra distances. But that's not to say that I, I do have some athletes who are, you know, sort of marathon distance um, or, or round about that sort of that, that sort of thing. And some people who are just who are doing trails and the building up using shorter races with with a bigger goal in mind. But um most of my coaching before that had, they say, through being 
sports, you know, sports science teacher as, as well. And um, it, it being sort of at that sort of track up to sort of half marathon distance. Um, and then over the last sort of 10 years, I was coaching just people that I knew and doing my own sort of coaching. And then, um, and then it's nice to have your own accountability. So I spoke to Andy oh, maybe five, six years ago, and then he started coaching me. And it was nice just to have somebody to bounce ideas off and similar philosophy and similar approach and that kind of scientific approach of looking at things and not just, you know, buying into fads and stuff like that. And um, so then after a few years of being coached by him and I was talking about my coaching, he said, well, why don't we have a chat? And so we kind of, he invited me to join their group and obviously Andy's got a good sort of, um, he's got a good network which is something which is, I think, one of the hardest things to be able to access as a coach. You've, you've got your own networks and stuff like that, but it can be quite local. And, and Andy has got a, a more international sort of um, presence than, than I did. So, uh, yeah, and, and just the knowledge and a lot of the stuff around things like power and using different types of metrics. It's good to have someone um, to chat your ideas about and, then, and to learn from. It's good to have, you know... You, you know, you, you never know everything. It's it's good to be learning all the time and sit back and listen to what other people have got to say and to, and, and certainly on, on things like power and using, for example, you know, different types of power meters and things. Um, that's an area that that Andy's passionate about and uh, it's something that I've been using and I know a lot of my clients have started to buy into now and we're using that as a tool now to be able to to gauge efforts and metrics during training but also to use it in races as well and help and pace people to the best of their ability using power rather than things like heart rate and and and, and, and perceived effort and all those kinds of things it's another good kind of metric to add in there um, and and mix it up with the trail i think using power on trails obviously different to using power on on road and uh, where you haven't got very you know maybe such extreme examples of of changes in in gradients and, and types of terrain, you've obviously then got to have a, a series of different numbers that you're going to be using in trail because you're not just sitting at the Gold Coast Marathon, sitting on that same pace or that same power from start to finish. Um, so it, it, it's it's fascinating working out what people's, you know, most efficient running uphill, hiking uphill, running downhill, running over technical stuff sometimes a bit it isn't quite as good because that's to do with confidence. You might just be more confident running across technical stuff than me and the power doesn't really um, measure confidence. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been fascinating. So over the last two years, I've been working with mile 27 and it's just, it just gives you that a wider network, um, uh, more to chat about. It's nice to have people to bounce off. So it's, it's brilliant. Really, really uh, yeah, just fascinating. Uh, it's and again, it just allows me to get. Uh, it's kind of teaching by a different name, I suppose. I've always thought I would get out of teaching, but in a sense, you're still teaching. It's just a different subject matter, but it's about communication and communicating ideas and getting people to understand things and teaching, educating people about their their their, their process and what it is that's going to get their body to do what it is that they needed to do in order to get to whatever goal it is they'd like to achieve. And uh, it's it's really, really lovely, uh, vicariously living through some people's fascinating races and also just their training journey. You know, you've got some people who are doing little races, but it's interesting to hear how encouraged they get by when they see goals at the meeting. And then it's interesting to hear somebody talking about doing Marathon de Sabres or doing something in Canada or running in Kenya and, and reading these race 
descriptions and it's nice to be able to research their races and find out about more what they can do and how are you going to coach somebody who's living in Melbourne to be able to do that race over there it's, it gets you thinking about it and it's, uh, it's, it's again just problem solved isn't it it's all it's all jigsaws of, a, of another crazy thing that we call running but it's not just running <laughs> yeah it's like a you're two I guess those two big elements of your life you the teaching component and the and the running component it's kind of a natural marriage in a natural sort of area for you to go i guess yeah yeah it's it's, it's quite good and I, I like the remote thing where you know and now i can work work from a computer at home and which has given me this opportunity and i say to to move overseas now and not be tied to my to my job as a classroom teacher but actually have a remote job where i can take what i've got and move over there and go back and see family for a bit should be quite interesting unreal jim uh, any Sort of questions as we're wrapping up? No, mate, uh, no questions at all. I just, uh, I've really been in awe of today's conversation. It's been amazing to hear some of your journey, mate. And I think it's, uh, we always say this, Dust, but it'd be great to have you back on at some stage to uh, dive a little bit further into uh, hopefully the Larapinta Trail at some stage. Give Dust and I some pointers for when we tackle it. Well, unfortunately, as I said, it's because it's on in May and I've actually, the, the big news for, for, for me and the family is that we, we did decide just um, just before Christmas to actually sell the house and we're going to move to the UK, which my kids are less than... My kids were born here, so they're, they're, they don't think it's going home. But um, so Lara Pinta, <laughs> for me, unfortunately, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to withdraw. So um, I've been looking at some really interesting... Have you heard of the Tour of Giants, the Tour de Giants in, yeah, in Italy? Yeah, on the cards. Yeah, it's... Uh, at nine o'clock tonight, the entries for that are open, so I'm going to try and get into that. Is it, um, <laughs> I've, I've got a countdown. I've got a countdown on my watch. So is it uh, one of those but, like you got to be quick to get in? I, I don't. Well, I think because the last couple of years there's been COVID-related issues, there's a lot of places that are promised uh, already. Yeah. Um, it's certainly not a UTMB um, situation, but I think. But it's like a three hundred. It's like it's two hundred miler. It's like three hundred thirty k's. It's got twenty-four thousand meters of elevation. Um, but you've got like a, it's got like, it's a 150 hour cutoff. Mm. That's like that's yeah. yeah so, uh, in, but yeah, you're in some pain if you need all that, aren't you? Oh, man, yeah, long, that's a long, long time on your feet. But you've just you're going through like the tour. It's the tour of giants where you, you're going through numerous 3,000 3,500 meter passes, and so there's an element of altitude and glaciers and <sighs> super exciting. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's cool. Well, I was going to ask you what's next, but you've covered that. Um, oh, I love that. Mate, I do have one question. We ask it every episode, even though we haven't done one for six months, um, but we're going to keep asking it anyway. And it's my favourite question. And it's, what's the weirdest thing that you've ever had happen on a run or in a race? Well, I have... Because I've heard, I have listened to some of your podcasts, and I hear some. There's been some crazy good stories, so I'm, I'm feeling like I don't have anything as mad as, uh, uh, as, as a few of the people's. But I, I don't know. You, you see, general, I guess things that weird things that have happened to me and stuff like that. Like I say, being being caught in the mountain and have to having to cuddle in with Matt and Jackie it was a That's kind funny. of an unusual situation, and uh, getting stuck on the Sphinx um, with the other with the two boys there. Like this time round was uh, was kind of was a bit challenging, and. Um, I think I think for for weird and it's it's you know it's certainly it's not prostitutes in Madrid or something which was the one I heard recently but uh, <laughs> I think even in UTMB you're coming down sections of that and there's 
the, the, in what appears to be the middle of nowhere, you can hear the sound as I'm going down. There's a harp player just plunked on the side of this technical descent. And she's just playing harp as we're going down. And I kept looking around thinking, is there a camera? Is there something here? And you run past and they barely look at you and just keep on playing their instruments as they're going down. And um, yeah, as you went down, there was just every, I don't know, I don't think I saw another human being for 45 minutes or an hour, but I don't know how they got this person in the harp up there, but just, yeah, yeah, just playing, playing yeah, the harp yeah, on the side, of an, the side of the mountain. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Was she there every year, do you know, or was that just that year? I don't know if it's a regular thing, I must admit, but she was just there as I went past, and, and I'm sure I wasn't hallucinating, because I'm sure I heard somebody else refer to it as well. You, yeah, weren't, I mean. you weren't in Nimbin, so... <laughs> How far into yeah. the race was it? Uh, must be maybe 70, 80 K, I'd say. So, oh, yeah. You're pretty lucid then, are you? I reckon, I reckon. Oh, yeah, I think, I think they're the weird things that happen to you, isn't it, when you do start hallucinating. And I think that once you get past 36, 37 hours, I, I then start, you start to see things. And, and I think just I often see trees and stumps as other runners curled up and go over to offer help and then realize that, oh, God, that's just a tree. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, but again, it's mostly sleep deprivation. And I think that does that, that, that speaks to the idea of that, that mind altering kind of element to going that bit further and that bit longer and just to see what what your head does and and, and do you remain a nice person or do you become a grumpy bastard i think running into aid stations and running it when you've got crew and stuff like that like knowing that you can still be a nice person i think something that i like to test like do you become you know what i mean you, you go in there and you're exhausted and you're tired and you're feeling all privileged you know what i mean because what have you done you've You've wandered through the countryside for a bit of time and you're whinging about how life's hard. You know, we've got no idea how privileged we are to be even in the position to complain. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's what gets me through most of these things. Yeah. I know, like, Jim's just dropped out of the call, um, which is a shame because it would have been great to get his input on there, having been, having crewed for him and paced for him on, on, a, you know, on, a, on a couple of big races that I'd love to hear his perception of himself when he comes into an aid station. Um, <laughs> I haven't, uh, I haven't run. I don't think I've, I haven't done a hundred miler yet. So I haven't, um, I haven't had that point where I've got that, um, I guess that worn out and that grumpy to, to, to not be conscious of that. Hey, people are giving up their time and it's their day as well that I, I try. You know, I like to think I'm, that's all right. right that, don't rush. It's fine. It's fine. It's a long, long race. You don't need a, you know, you know, some people are fussing over him, like it's okay. It's all right. I can feel my yeah. all that stuff. So, yeah. Oh, I'm spilling Jim's um, Jim dropped <laughs> out because it was. I would love to get his his self reflection on what version of himself runs into an aid station <laughs> at about 130k. Because crew, I think I always say crewing's harder than racing. You know, and, oh. and the crew crew always said, "Oh, don't be ridiculous. You saw, you know, because you're doing this and you're doing that." But like in that caldera, there's times where I would say I would be there at a certain time. And I'm not, I wasn't just an hour or two. I was eight, nine, 10 hours later than what I was expecting. And some people, like there's a guy called Gary who sat and waited for me. And he'd been there uh, probably 12, 13 hours more than the time I said I was going to get there. And that patience from crew and that loveliness and niceness of people who come to help you for no good reason other than they're just nice people and i think that's where crews hard, crewing's harder than racing it and it is that thing of no matter how stripped raw and tired and i am 
I remind myself that firstly, you're privileged. You've got the ability to be able to do this. Stop whinging. You're not some from some war-torn area of the world who would literally swap positions with you at any moment to have the the mere complaints of an ultra running. Oh, I've got bad legs. Oh, I'm a bit tired. Oh, I'm a bit hungry. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so. It's so I do. I hate to fall into that category. So I always want to make sure when I walk into an aid station, you're happy, you're super friendly, you're polite, you're courteous, because because you know what? If you're not, stop whinging. Get out. <laughs> you know what? Everyone remembers the asshole too. But yeah, you know, you just don't want to be that person, do you? <laughs> hey, Jim, did you drop out there, or did your camera just go off? No, I dropped out completely. Because oh, we are just talking about, <laughs> you didn't hear what we were saying, but thanks, for, because you're back, you can answer this question. We're having the, question, the chat about what version, you know, what sort of person you are when you come to an aid station when you're tired and, um, you know, sore and you're late in, a, late in a longer race. We just thought it'd be interesting to get Jim's uh, self-reflection on what version of him waltzes into the aid station or meets up with his crew at about 130K. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know, on any given day. <laughs> I don't know, I guess I... Uh, I've seen that, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> wide-eyed possums, yeah. I think I think once upon a time, Jim, and we can edit this out if you don't like this bit, but I, I remember <laughs> when I was pacing you and the words to the effect were, fucking just grab your shit, Gus, let's go. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> <laughs> once you'd had enough of the aid station, everyone asking how you were and that, then you weren't rude or impolite or anything you're very grateful but i think it was just everyone fussing over and you're like and you weren't feeling great and you're just like fucking grab your shit mate let's go well just I don't know. Just like you said but it, you always remember the arsehole i'm sure there's someone <laughs> listening going no nah, that's not the version i know of him <laughs> <laughs> oh very good well i reckon we're uh, i reckon we're done unless there's uh anything else you want to Shine the light on Simon while you've got the got the stand. No, God, I'm I'm no, I'm really really happy. It's been lovely to chat to you both. It really has, mate. Really appreciate you making the time. I know it's a busy period for you at the moment. You're doing one of the things I hate the absolute most, which is packing a house up. Um, it's the worst. Um, so hopefully we've given you a couple of hours reprieve from doing that, and heaps of work's been done while you've been in in the in here on the chat. <laughs> I'm sure there has. <laughs> Uh, well, Jimbo. Well, thank you. Thank you both very much. I really appreciate it. Just asking me to come on and uh, yeah, just the chance to talk about the caldera and stuff like that is something that uh, I'd love people, anybody in the area who wants, like I say, it's not something I want to own, but I just want people, if anybody wants any ideas or any information about it, like it's just our, as free as it can be. I'll just try and create a resource. People can add to it, take from it what they want, but just, yeah, let's make it into something. Yeah, and once um once once all that's up and available and stuff, we'll we'll share the um share all the links and the and any that you do already have. Some we'll grab them off you and we'll we'll put them in the show notes and we'll chuck them up on the um on the Hillbilly Endurance Run Crew group as well. Um, there's quite a few people in there. We're pretty blown away when we shared your your run in there. So um we'll, we'll get all that out and uh, hopefully we'll get to see someone else go around it in the near future. In the, I'd uh, love to see that. Yeah, the Simon trademark Simon Burn round. <laughs> I'd love to see somebody do it. It would be great. Yeah, there's no reason why not. It's doable. It's very doable.
Yeah. Simon, it's great hearing from you, mate. You've uh, you definitely got a voice for podcasting. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's easy, an easy listen. Das, you were definitely my draw card, mate. I didn't do you justice last time. It's definitely I'm back to I'm back to yarn with you, mate. Uh, so, Here's so, mate. I thought you were just going to say I've got a uh, for podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I love the curls. I hope, I hope everyone's getting uh, as much satisfaction out of them as I am. Well, no one gets to see this. They just get to hear it, Jim. <laughs> Might have to put up a few uh, few little clips out of the out of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Your hair's your hair's looking pretty healthy too, mate. Thanks, I like the curls. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to say curls get the girls, but that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're only curls in the gym, maybe. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks for a great chat. Great way to kick the week off on a Monday, that's for sure. Thank you very, very much. Take care and we'll uh, chat soon. Cheers, Jeff. Thanks, Ben. Peace.